The Missouri Senate is poised to take up a slew of hot-button issues over the next few months. That includes a ballot item changing the way Missouri does state legislative redistricting and an effort to eliminate a residency requirement for St. Louis police officers. At the center of these fierce public policy debates is Senate President Pro Tem Dave Schatz. The Sullivan Republican joins us on the latest edition of Politically Speaking to talk about the Senate's top priorities and how he's responding to Democratic pushback. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in studio today is... Julie O'Donohue. And joining us by phone in beautiful Jefferson City, Missouri, our special guest today is... State Senator Dave Schatz. Thank you so much for joining us, especially after what was a very, very, very long night for you. We're recording this on Thursday afternoon, and... On Wednesday afternoon and Thursday morning, the Senate was debating a state legislative redistricting ballot item, and it's all revolving around an issue widely known as Clean Missouri. Senator, my first question for you is, what happened last night? What are you trying to do with that issue? And what should the people of Missouri know about what your caucus stands on the issue of state legislative redistricting? Well, sure. Th- thanks, Jason. I-, I will tell you that, obviously, uh, the, I think the one thing, if people uh, had an opportunity to listen last night, they did hear uh, a fair amount of debate uh, on the issue and about the concerns about the issue, and, and-, and I can go over them in detail. Uh, it did go on, a-, a lengthy process that lasted way into the night. I think uh, uh, I probably got out of here somewhere around the 4, 4 a.m. time frame, uh, and then we came back this morning about 10 o'clock uh, to try to get into session and, and try to finish up business this week. So, But I think there was a healthy amount of debate. But I think at the end of the day, uh, we want a process, and I think it's one of the number one priorities for our uh, Republican caucus is this particular issue. Uh, we want a process that puts Missouri citizens in charge of drawing maps, not unelected, unaccountable political appointees, uh, bottom line. Uh, background checks also that uh, that should, on current demographers of candidates uh, they need to be they're ongoing right now, but at the end of the day, the way that Clean Missouri uh, I believe was cleverly drawn and passed, uh, but the portions of the redistricting part uh, were were tremendous. Uh, in length, very difficult for, I think, voters to understand, even the process in which we draw political maps right now. Uh, and at the end of the day, what we believe is the most important thing is compactness and contiguity. Uh, you know, first and foremost, they need to be equal distribution. Uh, you know, that is the first criteria in which when we draw political maps, we need to have equal uh, a distribution of uh, constituents in those Senate districts, House districts. Uh, but I don't believe that fairness and competitiveness should take uh, precedence over compactness and contiguity. And so my question, you know, when we talk about when we had conversations last night, how do you draw 
uh, a competitive district in, per se, city of St. Louis, when the majority of voters in St. Louis are Democrats? How do you get to a, a 50-50 map? Well, obviously, you know, people complain about gerrymandering. Uh, this is the, the definition of gerrymandering. If you go into a district in St. Louis where it's predominantly held by by Democratic constituents, and then you have to find competitiveness, you have to go out and, and gerrymander a district in order to get uh, to that competitive nature. Uh, and I think uh, compactness, contiguity is, is critical. And I think local representation, people that are involved in the community, represents the community far better than the t- process that they're proposing right now. I'm going to play a clip now from Sean Sonker Nicholson. He is the campaign director of Clean Missouri, and he's going to explain, in his opinion, what the impact on competitiveness is in in relation to Missouri legislative races will be if Clean Missouri is retained. Princeton did an analysis um, on looking at the math of, of how the plans, uh, how the math in the state constitution will work out, and their estimate was about 20% of the districts would be competitive, and that of course assumes that you've got candidates that are out there working, that are talking to voters, that are knocking doors, like, candidates have still got to do their part, and that's great, like, what we want is a world where how good the candidates are and how hard they're working and are they connecting with voters, that that actually is a thing that matters. Nicholson has also said that he disagrees with the idea that every district would have to be 50-50 under Clean Missouri. So I want you to respond to that contention. I also want you to respond to the basic principle behind that clip that the system that the voters passed in 2018 is better because it'll increase the amount of competitive districts in the state. Well, I think that, you know, his contention that only 20 percent of, of the districts would, you know, ultimately be competitive. You know, what is the per- current percentage right now of the districts that are competitive? I mean, first, first and foremost, let's let's look at that and see. We, we have competitive districts right now. But I do believe that, that what we've talked about in the process of trying to create competitive districts, I kind of disagree with the notion, first and foremost, uh, as we go through this process of how do we identify um, a party, uh, you know, again, and, and in which we get there with a demographer, supposedly a nonpartisan demographer making the determination as to draw a district and put people in political parties and to determine, uh, you know, what, what their vote outcome in order to be a competitive district. And some of the conversations I had on the floor last night, Jason, uh, with Senator Shoup were this. I, I am in a lifelong resident of Franklin County. Franklin County has been uh, a portion of the 26th senatorial. Predominantly, I think that you would say that it's about a third Democrat, two-thirds Republican. Uh, and and I, the people in Franklin County know the representation. I also represent part of western St. Louis County. But I think having people that live uh, in the communities are, is critically important to representing them. And I don't necessarily believe that in it, you know, Franklin County would want to have to, uh, to split that county down the middle have someone represent them that maybe not even live in that particular county or have an interest in what happens in Franklin County or in the 26th Senatorial District. So I think there's reasons why I believe it's far better to be uh, involved, you know, compact, uh, contiguous districts that, that, you know, are communities that people are lived in, involved in. And again, I think the process that we've had over the past obviously has been, you know, uh, in question. Uh, but at the end of the day, we still believe that when you put the criteria in the, the way Clean Missouri has listed the criteria, you know, starting with equal uh, splits of the districts and then competitiveness is the number two criteria, number three criteria, 
How else do you, when you're trying to draw a map, do you not come up with the process that lends you to believe that that be the, the top priority as you, have you've been given that as the instructions to draw these maps from as, as a demographer? I mean, is there a danger in kind of undoing what voters decided to do? I think we're seeing on the national stage Republicans argue that Democrats are right now trying to undo the election of the president. And, and to me, this kind of looks the same way. Like, you didn't like the outcome, and so now maybe you're trying to go back and change that. But the voters have said what, what they wanted. Well, but again, the voters will say what they want again. The vote is, again, this is not the, the legislature is giving the voters an opportunity to get another bite at the apple. And so if, and I had this conversation and, and what if last it gets, night. And what if it gets voted down? If it gets voted down, obviously, then then I believe then we would have to say, well, this issue, you know, we've given them our proposal, what we believe is is right for Missouri. This proposal, this is the one they accepted. I think you're going to have a hard time at that point if this thing fails of coming back and trying to address that issue. But I will say this, because it is going back to the same voters, it's giving them the opportunity. So people saying that we're overturning or we're going overturning the will of the vote, I think is is a not necessarily it's a, it's a true statement because we're going back to those same voters, giving them an opportunity to choose what we believe is the right method as opposed to the process in which this was developed. Now, I, I did in, in some of the debate last night talked about the process, the process in which we, you know, we spent hours last night and we spent in committee going through how we believe this should be done. The process of clean Missouri and the decisions that were made to list uh, the redistricting portions of that, we don't know who did that. We don't know how long it took. We don't know if it was one individual. We don't know where it came from. But I, this is the one thing about the legislature. We have public testimony, public input, committee votes, debate on the floor through two chambers, ultimately, and that's putting something before the voters that I think has been thoroughly vetted to the extent that, again, we don't know what happened in secret and dark when Clean Missouri was drafted or who was behind Clean Missouri. And so I think it's fair for us to go back and get another bite at the apple and ask voters to say, we think this is a better proposal. One of the main thing that Senator Hageman's bill would do is it would basically eliminate the demographer and have either bipartisan commissions or appellate judges draw the House and Senate maps. I'm going to play a clip now from Trent Skaggs. He's a former state legislator who served on the Senate commission that actually produced the map that you know currently governs the Senate. And He's a Democrat and he supports clean Missouri. And he had this observation about how the commission process works. My whole problem with redistricting is just the distrust that's, I mean, you don't have people necessarily dealing in good faith and you don't have people, um, and then then we think you're dealing in good faith and you come to an agreement. When you leave, then um, um, people go back and talk to their various parties or different candidates and and, and things change again. And so there just was this inherent lack of trust between the committee members, even sometimes amongst your own party. And, um, um, and so that, that, from that standpoint, I kind of view this as almost like the Missouri court plan, right, that was put in place in the 1940s. I mean, it, it's not perfect, but it at least, it at least builds back some of that trust. Senator, I'm sure you watched the commission process pretty carefully in 2012. I, I can't really say that anyone who witnessed it thought that it went particularly smoothly, either with the commissions or the judges drawing the lines. Why do you think that that would be a better system than the demographer holding all the power? 
Well, but but I think I do. I think we do have concerns uh, when when you have a demographer. Obviously, I think the criteria uh, in which the demographer is being chosen. Uh, I think that uh, we have some real concerns about the quality of the can uh, the, the candidates that are there. Uh, it doesn't provide a lot of guidance, uh, and having one particular individual chosen uh, by you know to say they're nonpartisan. I mean, it's very very difficult. Uh, and say that that is a more trusted process when you have a bipartisan commission made up of Republicans and Democrats that obviously have to have a consensus. To reach a consensus, they would need, a, you know, uh, a, a, I, I believe it's uh, seven seventy percent. Maybe I've got that wrong. I believe but, uh, it's seven out of ten. Yes, seven out of ten have to come to a consensus on a map. If they can reach that consensus, how can how can there be scrutiny over over that process? And if that consensus can't be uh, met, obviously then it goes to judges. Obviously judges, we believe, uh, are, are fair and impartial, and, and partisanship should not occur in the judicial uh, system. So if you think that judges uh, going through this process, I mean, where would you want to put it in, in whose hands at that point? If you cannot reach a consensus with a bipartisan commission, where should it go? Or should you just say that, that this supposed nonpartisan demographer is a better process. I don't think that's the case. I have two quick questions before we move on to the next topic. Would the Republicans consider using the previous question to make sure that Senator Hageman's bill goes to the House? Well, I, I think, uh, Jason, in, in all fairness, we want to do everything we can to avoid that. We, we know the ramifications of, uh, again, uh, having the majority. And I think, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected. And I believe, you know, that we, we are very aware of that. We've worked very closely with, with the minority leadership to make sure that we can get a resolution without having to take those measures and, and then creating a, an environment that becomes hostile and difficult to work in. Uh, we want to respect the minority, uh, but we also know that obviously that we have been given uh, a, a supermajority in the House and the Senate, uh, and we're going to have a healthy lengthy discussion. And ultimately, we believe that we can prevail on this issue with some compromise in the process. Uh, again, it we will not, we're going to have disagreement. And we're not going to probably always at the end of the day say, you know, that it was that we both got, you know, something out of this that we feel that was a, is a, a win-win. But, uh, but we're going to respect the, the minority and hopefully we don't end up there. My, my final question on this topic, would the Senate consider putting like an amendment on this that would have voters vote on this in August as opposed to November? I, I don't know that uh, that we're going to do that. I think the governor has the opportunity to pick the uh, the ballot, uh, the timing of the ballot when this thing goes before the voters, but I don't think that we're going to be placing any requirements uh, on what election ballot this goes on. I want to move on and talk about, I guess, the so-called gray machines that are popping up in gas stations and convenience stores and whatnot. So sure. you were the first person that, I, I mean, I wasn't here last year, but my understanding is you were really the first person to raise this as an issue. You filed legislation last year to crack down on these machines, which I believe you think are illegal. Why, what brought this to your attention? Well, obviously, uh, and, and you and I have conversation about whether or not I drink uh, Diet Pepsi, Diet Coke, and how I prefer that. But uh, where I go and, and get what I would consider my morning coffee uh, is a local gas station in Franklin County. Uh, and obviously, these machines uh, show up in uh, my my choice of, of where I purchase my Fountain Diet Coke. Uh, and I'm looking at machines, machines that are identical to gambling machines that you would find at a casino. And they're basically, you know, they have language written on there um, that, that obviously they believe uh, prohibits them or, or allows them uh, to be there in this. And, again, 
seeing that and knowing uh, that I believe that the, the, the only places that have allowed legal gaming in the state of Missouri are, are casinos that are authorized by the Gaming Commission. And so that's where I first became aware, you know, and seen uh, these particular machines. And at that point, uh, as we began to uncover and see that there's a tremendous number of these being deployed, we the, what we're seeing is a diversion of dollars that the, the lottery receives based upon um, maybe where these machines have been deployed and about how lottery revenues and receipts have gone down where these machines exist. And so that uh, that conversation began. We were having conversations about uh, the expansion of, of video lottery terminals in the state, uh, but we could not deal with the illegal, what I believe to be illegal machines uh, right now that are currently proliferating the state right now. And so it was important to file legislation. Unfortunately, did not make it uh, completely across the finish line. Uh, and we filed that again. Senator Cunningham has filed it as well. Uh, but there is a court case right now currently in Platte County on uh, the particular elements of these machines, whether or not they are legal gaming operations or not. And I think that uh, uh, we want to. We obviously need to see the outcome. But the the Gaming Commission, which I believe is the authority on this issue, believes that uh, per our statutes, they're illegal. Uh, and there are gaming devices, gambling devices, as per our, our Constitution and our uh, statutes prohibit. So you and other senators have proposed bills that would crack down on these machines and punish the owners of businesses that had machines, these machines in them. But last I saw, Governor Mike Parson was not convinced that these machines were illegal. It's been well documented that one of the owners of the companies that distributes these machines is a donor to Parsons Pack. Do you have any concerns that the governor doesn't have your perspective when it comes to the gray machines? Again, I think that's maybe a mischaracterization of the governor's perspective on these particular machines. I think the governor uh, is, uh, I think his position would solidly be, you know, that if these these machines are deemed illegal, then obviously he is not as supportive of them going forward. I don't think there's in any shape way that it could be construed any different. I think that maybe in his statement what he said is obviously there is a, a court is going to ultimately make that decision. So I don't think he's punting that decision, but there has been uh, this uh, this concern because of gray area that's reportedly out there uh, because local prosecutors and people are uncertain as to the terms of the law. And I think the governor is waiting for the facts to come in before, you know, but again, I think he is solidly on the side of making sure that we, ha- we do not have illegal gaming uh, that's going on throughout the state, uh, regardless of if someone's com- contributing to a PAC or political, uh, you know, action committee that may be affiliated with uh, supporting him. Uh, you know, in, in his reelection. I understand that, but the Platt County case is unlikely to be resolved for several months, if not over a year. So, in the meantime, what do you think the legislature might do about this issue? And are you concerned that the governor is going to want to wait for that case, which would determine whether the machines are illegal? I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily believe. I don't. Uh, I don't necessarily believe that the, if we put a uh, a bill that enhances uh, and 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 clarifies. Um, potentially this particular issue on the governor's desk. I'm confident the governor would sign that. I don't have any any concerns about that. So do you, uh, one last question on this topic, are you open to a compromise wherein the machines would be like considered legal but taxed and regulated like slot machines? Or do you want them out of the stores? I personally do not believe 
that it, that that any argument can be made that this is a great revenue generator enhancement for the state of Missouri by putting these machines uh, out across our state. Uh, I just I'm, I'm not interested in in trying to obtain revenue based upon that premise. Uh, I do not. If I want to go and and stand in the casino and gamble, I'm, I'm perfectly able to do that. But I don't want to feel like every time I walk into a gas station that I've entered into a two-bit casino. Uh, and I and I have to tolerate uh, that particular environment. So I, I reject it. I don't want to see them. Uh, I don't think there's communities out there that want them uh, proliferating in their community as well. Uh, and so it's a, a topic I think that is going to take a lot of discussion before we see an expansion of gaming uh, on on that level. We'll be right back after this quick break with Senate President Pro Tem Dave Schatz. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Senate President Pro Tem Dave Schatz. I want to talk about another piece of legislation that you've been carrying that's the talk of the St. Louis area, and that's a bill to get rid of the city of St. Louis's residency requirement. Now, this is an example, I guess, of bipartisan agreement, at least locally. St. Louis Mayor Lyda Krusen is a big supporter of this move, and it seems like it has the fast track to pass both chambers of the legislature. I want you to explain why you decided to get involved in this issue and why you think removing the residency requirement is a good idea. Well, Jason, I think, uh, you know, obviously when we, we had the interim committees uh, because of some of the public safety concerns in the St. Louis region uh, and in St. Louis County area that we, we've been trying to address, trying to find ways to improve safety, uh, and, and public safety in, in, in that area. Well, one way I believe uh, it is critical to do that is to making sure that we have uh, enough quality law enforcement candidates out there on the streets to do that. Currently, I think the city, uh, the city of St. Louis is short uh, 120-plus officers uh, to fill the number of uh, opportunities that they have available for employment. Uh, and so putting more officers first and foremost is, is critical in order to enhance public safety. Uh, the residency requirement is hampering the, the department's ability to be able, be able to attract qualified candidates. And so for them asking uh, to be, get some relief from that, obviously, when we, they also see the potential number of people that are in the queue that could be retiring, and it only gets worse as we go forward. So, so having a barrier uh, to, to get those employees in the door obviously is something we felt was critical for us to remove. Will it completely address that shortfall of issues? Obviously, it'll be, it will be one thing. It will be one thing that will help. It will not be the only thing that helps, but it will be one thing that will be helped to attract people uh, to, uh, to, to that law enforcement. Obviously, law enforcement right now is, is uh, an occupation that uh, you know, is, is struggling uh, across our state, across the country, and finding people that want to enter into that field. Uh, and so we need to take any barriers that are that are currently out there existing that would prohibit someone from making that decision uh, out of the way. And so uh, I was glad to see that the mayor is supportive of that. Uh, the, the the police uh, uh, is in support of it. And at the end of the day, I think it's you know it's an old uh, process in which uh, that has been tried uh, for years. And I think we're seeing that people move away from it. That residency requirements are no longer necessary. There has been some chatter in the Missouri House that the legislation may be altered to ban all residency requirements, including the one in Kansas City. What's your feeling on that? Because I could see that being a point of contention among Kansas City lawmakers that say, we don't want to get rid of our residency requirement. Kansas City is a huge geographically, excuse me, Kansas City is much larger geographically than St. Louis. And this should be a St. Louis only thing. What's what's your well, what's the temperature on that? 
Well, I think that what again, what we need to hear from, uh, obviously, we've heard from some folks that are on 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 that side of the issue who would like to see it applied statewide. I've heard from a lot of the officials uh, in Kansas City that say, you know, we we're happy. Um, it's not necessary. We're not having any concerns filling the, the job applicants that we have, and so we we would like it to be left alone. But I've also heard from the Fraternal Order of a Police, uh, and I don't know if you went and talked to rank and file members that are in. Again, I'm, I'm not putting anybody on the spot, mm-hmm. but if you visited with rank-and-file members from the Kansas City Police Department, whether or not they would like to have that residency requirement moved, I think you'd get a mixed bag of, of answers. Some quick hits before we let you go. I want to ask you about Medicaid expansion. There's a ballot initiative that's being circulated right now. I think the chances of it making the ballot are very high because there are powerful interest groups funding it. Would the Missouri Senate be interested this session in coming up with their own version of Medicaid expansion that they could put their stamp on and they could control rather than leaving it up to the mercy of a ballot initiative to force the legislature's hand next year? I think there, I, I think there are some things that are that are being proposed or being talked about that ultimately deal with the elements of Medicaid expansion. Whether or not that we are going to go down the path and say that we're willing to expand Medicaid, but I think, you know, the the reality is that it's a significant cost to get Medicaid off the ground. Uh, and where does that money come from? And I have made this conversation and had it with uh, with folks, uh, you know, as recently as last week with my school superintendents. We talk about what we perceive to be the cost for Medicaid expansion and where does that money come from. Well, the propo- proponents of Medicaid expansion don't give us any solutions to that. Uh, they're not proposing any funding mechanisms to provide for the expansion of that. And at the end of the day, people need to be looking at that because, you know, where's the pot of money that we have, kind of discretionary ability to, you know, if we're mandated for Medicaid expansion, well, it comes from education. That's where it would come from. I just want to clarify, are you opposed to the ballot initiative that would expand Medicaid I'm, I, I am opposed to it. I mean, myself personally, obviously, I'm opposed to it because obviously I don't think they come up with a funding solution that addresses the issues that, as we appropriators here in the legislature, are faced with. I know there's been a lot of attention on rural hospitals and why they're closing and whether Medicaid expansion could prevent them from closing. Are, is there any chatter about what might be going on with rural hospitals and Medicaid expansion? There, well, there is always a concern. I live in uh, in a community that has a rural hospital uh, in Sullivan, Missouri. And it I, is and why again, I'm asking. <laughs> yeah, and I am I'm fully aware of the dynamics that our hospitals are faced with and the Medicaid population uh, and obviously the issues that, that exist around there, and I'm very aware of that. And, and these, these hospitals in rural areas are critical uh, and, and very, very important to, to these locations, and so I'm very well aware of that. But I think that also that at the end of the day, uh, you know, the, the decisions that we have to make are difficult, and we have to do what's in the best interest of the state in general. Uh, but I want to make sure our hospitals exist there that are there for our communities, but also need to make sure uh, that we're not sacrificing uh, things in order to do something we believe we can possibly take care of in another fashion. How do you address the issue with rural hospitals, which is very much a real issue outside of Medicaid expansion? You know, uh, that that's a good question, and I don't know that I you know, completely have an answer uh, because I understand the struggles. I have met with our hospital administrators locally uh, and visited with them, and I understand the challenges they face um, as well. I mean, the uncompensated care, the number of dollars that are uncompensated care, but I can tell you this, that a lot of these hospitals, if they said the only thing that they were able to survive on was the Medicaid population and the reimbursements from Medicaid, they couldn't afford to exist on that either. 
it would help. Medicaid expansion would help uh, a certain portion of the population, but it's not the magic answer that's going to keep rural hospitals afloat because obviously, you know, only a Medicaid population would make it difficult for them to exist as well. A couple more topics. I know you sponsored legislation dealing with the auditor. There's been a big brouhaha in the Capitol about Auditor Galloway's impending audit of former Attorney General Josh Hawley. What have you done on this issue, and how would you respond to Democratic criticism that this Republican attention on the Hawley audit is aimed at trying to discredit it before it's released? Well, I, I think the, the the bill that I filed obviously is a bill that we have a statutory, statutory requirement to audit the auditor's office uh, every other year. When we talk about you know the issues maybe surrounding the Hawley audit and or uh, the lieutenant governor's office when he was there, I think there is some discrepancies there that obviously uh, the, uh, the the auditor needs to address uh, on the amount of time uh, that it took uh, compared to the amount of time it took to do uh, Governor Nixon's closeout audit. I think just recently uh, here this week in test in uh, in testimony, the head of audits in testimony in the committee indicated uh, that the individual in question that that potentially could have been either a campaign staff or a contributor uh, to Senator McCaskill um, is no has been removed uh, from the Hawley audit. It was a contrib- uh, yeah he you're talking about Bobby Showers. He was a contributor yeah. and and he might have posted something on social media saying something disparaging about President Trump. I don't think he was a staffer. I think you're referring to David Kirby. I, I, I say or a contributor. I wasn't sure yes. if he was a staffer. I just wanted to make that clear for our yeah, audience, no, but continue. Yeah. Yeah, so he was, uh, you know, a contributor. But again, I think, you know, that, uh, you know, having someone and some of the comments that were potentially made either in in an email conversation or or a Facebook post, obviously when we have, you know, people need to have uh, faith uh, in the integrity of the auditor's office. And obviously when that is is uh, is kind of a cloud looming over it. I think it was important for them to take steps to address that issue. Now, Julie has a question she's been wanting to ask you for a long time, and we're going <laughs> to wrap up this interview with that. I want to ask all the senators. So the Missouri Senate committee meetings are not streamed online. You cannot watch them. You can watch the Missouri House committee meetings. And uh, for what it's worth, I've worked in a couple different states where I could also watch uh, all the committee meetings at the local state house. So I want to know why the Senate committee meetings aren't available to stream uh, and whether there's been any discussion about changing that. You know, I, I will say that that uh, that's not a topic that has really came about with a lot of uh, of you know, hit, hitting my radar screen as to why aren't we doing this? I mean, obviously you're bringing this question to me today. I will I will look into it uh, and and again uh, try to come up with some reasons if there are reasons for or against. But I think that uh, I I don't know that there's necessarily opposition or reason why we don't do it or whether there's some some uh, problems with uh, equipping these. I mean, one thing we are ch- a little bit challenged for space and committee hearing rooms and the process in which we are able to navigate back and forth. I'm not sure how difficult it is to just live stream those communications, uh, but I will look into that and see, uh, you know, what is the history and the background on that and when the House adopted to stream their committee hearings. Uh, and, and hopefully the next time we talk, I'll have a, an answer for you as to where we stand on that issue. Julie O'Donohue getting results <laughs> from Missouri State Government. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I mean, selfishly, obviously, I'm a journalist based in St. Louis, so it like affects me personally. But like on a more serious note, you know, I think there are people with disabilities or just that don't have the means to go to Jefferson City. And sometimes they want to watch 
discussion of bills that are relevant to their issues. I, f- I fully understand, and again, we want people to be able to again have access to you know to these particular issues. I like said when we have uh, open and public testimony when people come forward. Um, again, I don't know. I can't uh, specific to why it hasn't occurred yet, but again, I'm willing to look into it and, and try to move forward on the issue. No, I hear you. Thank you so much. We're out of time now for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter, Julie? At J.S. O'Donohue. And we can follow the senator at Dave Schatz 26 Is that correct? There you go. <laughs> thank you yeah. so thank you so much for joining us, Senator, and until next time, so long. Every day I wake up, I'm a chief. When I walk out the door, I'm a chief. White, yellow, red hat like a chief. If I had a long day, I'm a chief. What you tell them, man? Hey, hey, every day I'm a chief. What you tell them, man? Hey, hey, every day I'm a chief. What you tell them?